Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. First came a whistleblower's call for the IRS to punish Ensign Peak Advisors, the investment arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, accusing it of stockpiling a reserve fund worth tens of billions of dollars intended for charity, but never spent for that purpose. Then came a federal lawsuit, now on appeal, from a prominent and prosperous former member alleging fraud by the Utah-based faith and seeking the return of his tithing donations. In recent weeks, the IRS whistleblower called on the U.S. Senate Finance Committee to investigate Ensign Peak for illegally dodging billions in taxes. And finally came word that the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating Ensign Peak over past investment practices that reportedly concealed the multi-billion dollar portfolio. Will these unflattering headlines about the church's wealth ever end? What might be the final outcome? Here to discuss those questions and more is Sam Brunson, a popular Latter-day Saint blogger and a tax law professor at Loyola University, Chicago. He joins us today via Zoom. Professor Brunson, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, it's been more than three years since David Nilsson, who is a former money manager in Ensign Peak, submitted his initial whistleblower complaints to the IRS. Since no public action has been taken in that case by the tax agency, does that mean nothing's going to come of that or could something still happen? So theoretically, something could happen. And in fact, if something does happen, we'll probably never hear about it. The IRS takes taxpayer privacy very seriously. Um, That said, based on my looking at his complaints and on some of my colleagues and friends, I suspect nothing's going to happen. So let me ask you, given the Wall Street Journal's recent report by the, uh, that an SEC investigation is likely to lead to a settlement, could that prompt the IRS or, for that matter, the Senate that we referred to take further action? Could that move that needle at all on those? Probably not. The SEC's investigation is because um, Ensign Peak Advisors didn't file what's called a Form 13F with the SEC which is something that institutional money managers who manage more than, I believe, $100 million in certain Mm -hmm. types of um, securities uh, have have to file quarterly with the SEC. So it it looks like Ensign Peak didn't file that form until after the first whistleblower complaint. And so like with that, it that that's unrelated related to the tax issues. That's purely an investment manager issue. So, so that could just be a, a purely cut and dried case of they didn't file the form. That's a mistake. Blah, blah, right. blah, right? Right. Okay. And it's not my area of law, but I've talked to a couple friends who do this who say major fines in that area are usually unlikely unless you're talking about the deliberate, um, a, 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 an investment manager deliberately not filing um, against the law. More likely is a negotiated settlement where the Ensign Peak Advisors agrees to pay some nominal fine, probably with most SEC enforcement violations without admitting wrongdoing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't know for sure, but I've looked around and there are a handful of settlements, but this isn't really a big issue that the SEC goes after mostly. It, it- I'm not sure if you can answer this, Sam, but could could they face a different punishment to an, a punishment of, say, you can't trade for a certain amount of time on the market? Is it just mainly just a fine? Um, I don't know what all of the I, I don't know what all the potential consequences are. But from what I've seen, it's mostly just a fine, especially if Ensign Peak is in negotiations. And some of the news suggests that they are, in fact, negotiating with the SEC. Um, then I'd say it's probably less likely that the SEC will say will will impose other penalties like um, restrictions from trading. So, uh, speaking of the Wall Street Journal, the earlier Wall Street Journal um, quoted some of the church leaders as saying they were worried that people uh, members would stop paying tithing if they if they knew the church's full extent of its financial holdings. Do you think? Most people want to know exactly what the church does with their fine. Uh, first of all, do you think many members would would stop paying tithing if they knew the church's financial portfolio? Um, it, honestly, I don't. I, it, some would, some definitely would. I think, but for the most part, I think that if it were coming out of the church rather than whistleblowers, um, and the church were able to explain what it was doing without the pressure of responding to public pressure. I, I honestly don't think most members would stop paying tithing. Um, it, I, I could be wrong about that, um, but it, I, most of the mo- most of the hesitance that I've heard from people is the idea that the church is hiding th- not only has a lot of wealth, but is hiding the fact of its wealth. Don't you think? I mean, when I've done stories about this, people tell me they they don't pay tithing because uh, actually to help the church's finances, it's more like an inner commitment. Or I, I think, so I think that's probably right. I think um, most members are paying not because they believe that the church needs money. Frankly, if this is the church of Jesus Christ, if he's at the head, presumably he could do things without having a cash flow. Um, I mean, miracles could happen. So I think most people are paying because of an internal desire, because of a belief that it's something that God wants them to sacrifice. But I do think that where they lose trust in the church, that makes that sacrifice maybe less appealing, less less compelling. Well, so do you think most members want to know exactly what the church is doing with their money? I I don't think so. I think actually overdisclosure would be almost as bad as underdisclosure. We we don't, I think, need to know every cent that the church pays in its electrical bill on the building that I go to here in Chicago. Um, I, but I think probably a general sense we put this much, this many million dollars toward construction. We put roughly this amount of money into um, humanitarian aid. Stuff like that wouldn't be bad. Once upon a time, the church did give kind of those broad numbers, how much it sent towards, how much it used um, in humanitarian aid, how much it spent on missionaries, even how much it spent on salaries. So I think a more generalized version, not maybe every specific detail, would be great. 
so the church did report spending nearly $1 billion on charity in 2021. But given the size of the church's reserve funds, I mean, Ensign Peak's latest filing put that public disclosure of 40 billion, excess of 40 billion. Could it, should it be doing more on charity? So right here, you're running into me as a human being and me as a tax attorney. (laughs) Um, And me as a tax attorney, the legal definition of charity is broader than um, aid for the poor. So I, I was actually just preparing for class tomorrow. And the definition, generally accepted definition, includes aid for the poor and education and promotion of religion and a handful of other things. So even though colloquially, which... I will get to, I understand the question and I promise I'll answer the question too. But um, under legal, a legal sense of charity, almost everything the church does to promote religion would be a charitable purpose. But I understand that most people aren't tax attorneys and most people like understand language the way that we speak language rather than the way that it's technically been since the 1800s or earlier. Um, so in terms of aid for the poor, the church absolutely could do more. I don't honestly know whether it should or not. And part of that is because the ch- church doesn't explain how it chooses to allocate its money. There may be a good reason that it spent a billion dollars rather than $10 billion or rather than $100,000 or you know whatever the amount was. But I simply don't know what that is. it's clear to me that the mission of the church is not just to aid um, the poor and aid temporally, although that fits within the mission of the church. So I don't want to say that the church should spend all of its money or 90% of its revenue. I I don't know where to draw a line, but I think that if the church explained its reasoning, um, that would go a long way toward um, making at least some people more comfortable. So do you think the church just has too much money? (laughs) Yes. um, But (laughs) I don't begrudge big numbers of zeros behind dollar signs because I have worked as a New York attorney. I I have seen large numbers. I've seen investment funds that deal with bigger numbers than what the church has. Um, I don't think it needs 40 billion or a hundred billion dollars. I don't think that that money is going to protect it from, I mean, that money will clearly protect it from a rainy day, but that money will protect it from a whole lot of rainy days. Um, So I personally think that the church should probably spend down more of its money doing, I I don't know, doing what? Doing, I I would love the idea of more humanitarian aid, more um, public, charitable, helping the poor, but it could be building more buildings or providing transport for people or building more temples or getting janitorial services in buildings. There, there are a lot of different things that it could choose to do with um, its money. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a reserve fund we've been talking about. So this is just excess. Um, but we don't really know if they're tapping that, for instance, for all these temples that are being built. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Is the, that correct? The, the impression I got from three or four years ago is that they're not tapping the money. But I don't know that that's the case. And especially, I don't know if that has changed or not in the interim. Right. The, the church um, and Ensign Peak keep a tight lid on what they do financially. So, Sam, what do you think most outsiders either get wrong or simply don't understand about the church's finances? Um, I, a couple of things. 
One is, I don't think most outsiders or for that matter, insiders understand the way that tithing is determined. They don't understand the flexibility of tithing. It's we we think we think of it both as insiders and I assume as outsiders as being an objective 10% amount rather than an amount based on however we internally define income or increase or whatever language we want to use. Um, so I'd say that is one thing, but that's not alone to outsiders. And the second is that I think that there is some confusion about where the church allocates its money. We have this idea that we have a lay ministry, which we do, but we also have a paid clergy. We have this idea that everyone's volunteer. And a lot of people are volunteer doing things, but also we've got church headquarters in Salt Lake that has paid employees. Um, so there, there is some lack of understanding, even by me, of how we allocate the money that goes toward these things. Does it come from tithing money? Does it come from fast offering money? It doesn't come from fast offering money. Does it come from the for-profit investments that the church has made? And I've heard the church say different things about it, and I don't know how much it matters, but we just don't know. What do you think about the church, for instance, putting money toward building a mall in downtown Salt Lake City, which which President Gordon B. Hinckley said at the time was was done very strategically to uh, that was falling into disrepair. It sits right at the doorstep of the church's most significant landmarks and headquarters. What do you think about doing spending money on that? So I am an urban snob who would rather see like a true downtowny shopping area than a mall. Um, but but that's just me. That has nothing to do with actually responding. I actually don't have a problem with it. I I think that the church has a vested interest in keeping Salt Lake a nice place to go, a nice place to visit. I think that it is interested in providing jobs and a mall provides jobs for people. It provides a safe place. It provides a reason for people who aren't me to actually come and spend money in the community and to get introduced to the area. I, I've other than when I was at BYU, I've not lived in Utah. I don't feel a lot of ownership over Utah, but Utah is critical in the church's existence and in, in its standing. And I think there's no reason why it shouldn't work to make Utah a better place. So even though I would have, if I were investing in real estate around Temple Square, I would have done it differently. But um, I can't say that what they chose to do is wrong or is outside the mission of what they do. Now, kind of speaking of that, Sam, it does seem that outsiders and maybe some insiders don't understand that in Mormonism, material goods and wealth, all of that is considered kind of spiritual. It's all part of the church's even communitarian ethos. Instead of saying this is religion and this is material goods, they're all kind of part of religion to Mormons. Yeah. Do you think that? I, I think if we look at church history, especially it, it, that very strongly figures into our history up through throughout the 19th century into the 20th century. And as we have, it, it, as we've stopped being such, uh, um, as we've expanded our reach and our homes and our location, maybe we've lost that a little bit. 
But there is definitely a materiality, which isn't necessarily the same as materialism, but the physical world is part of our theology and is part part of our belief system. Um, there is danger in that, and that danger can fall where we start um, falling into prosperity gospel ideas that the material world is a blessing for righteousness rather than is part of our spiritual existence. But but I think you're absolutely right that that materiality, um, including shopping, including restaurants, including skiing and climbing, is all part of the religious worldview of Mormonism. So what concerns you most about the church's financial practices, given that? Um, I think probably what concerns me most is the lack of transparency. If money, if property, if holdings, if our everyday life is part of our spiritual life, I don't love the fact that we're partitioning off that part of the church from the lesson manual part of the church. And again, I don't think that as a member of the church, I have the right to know every little detail about what the church does with its finances. But I would love to be trusted to have some insight into, you know, how the church decides what it wants to do in the material world. I'm going to uh, shift gears to, an, to another case. Um, okay. The lawsuit against the church brought by former member James Huntsman was tossed out by a federal judge. It's, it's a ruling on his appeal from the Ninth Circuit is frankly expected any day. How do you see that case playing out? Do you think anything will come of it? I don't. Um, I haven't read through the most the filings in the recent past, but the initial filings under U.S. law, when you make a charitable donation, you lose control over the money that you donate. Unless like there are exceptions. If you donate enough, if you get the charity to agree to do certain th things, like if you're David Geffen and you convince Lincoln Center to put your name on the Avery Fisher Hall for $100 million, then if they don't put your name on Avery Fisher Hall, then you can sue them and get your money back. But generally speaking, an unrestricted gift goes to the charity and it belongs to the charity. The charity can do not anything it wants, but basically anything that it wants with that money. And there's no indication that Huntsman made a restricted gift of his tithing dollars. In fact, in that kind of circumstance, I don't think the church would accept, because a charity isn't under any obligation to accept a restricted gift. He does say that he was defrauded, and that is an exception. If a charity defrauds you into donating money, then um, you, know, you get remedies for fraud. But his argument of fraud and his argument of reliance felt very strained to me and felt very like ex post, he decided that he relied on certain statements of the church that he interpreted in a very, I'd say, idiosyncratic way. And he decided that he relied on them after the fact. So I think the dismissal was probably right. I can't, I, I, I'm not a foreteller of the future, but I can't imagine that he wins this case. So, so you're talking about the restricted gift. For instance, the Tribune's a nonprofit. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, organization will give us a, a donation in the fact that it will be for increased coverage of, say, housing issues or right. something like that. That's how you can put restrictions on it. Otherwise, a gift to, for instance, the Tribune that's just for our purposes of what reporting the news, 
um, the paper could choose how to do that. Okay. Exactly. Right. A similar example is if you give money to the Red Cross Red Crescent and say this has to be used for relief in Syria and Turkey, um, and they accept those conditions, then they're stuck with it. But an unrestricted gift is I'm inspired by the earthquake in Turkey to be generous. I give the Red Crescent money. They can use that money to help in Turkey, in Syria. But like if they're if they don't need it, if they have enough resources, then they can deploy it toward other humanitarian aid that they do. And that would be an unrestricted gift. Like in your example, the gift to just improve and expand the reporting of the Tribune. Mm-hmm. So you've already talked about uh, uh, greater transparency by the church. How, how do you think the church could actually do that? Go from right now being fairly not transparent and, and closed about it to being more. What, what would be your suggestion on how to get there? So an easy way would be to voluntarily file a Form 990. The 990 is the IRS information return that nonprofits other than churches are required to file. Um, so I, I will say whatever it does, however it decides to do it, there will probably be a rocky couple years where you go from no disclosure to disclosure. People are going to discover things they didn't know. Um, but even though churches aren't required to file a 990, they they certainly can. There's nothing preventing them from doing that. And, you know, if the church were to file a 990, then it it doesn't have to decide what kind of disclosure. Or, and to a large extent, it can say, look, we didn't know what to do, so we're doing this. Sure, you want to know other things, but this is the standard. This is what you can compare to other tax-exempt organizations. I mean, right now, BYU, because it's churches and certain auxiliaries to churches don't have to file a 990. So BYU doesn't file a 990. Meanwhile, I work for Loyola University Chicago, which is a Jesuit school, and we do file a 990. I don't know if, I, I think probably the better case is that we need to maybe BYU's closer connection to the LDS church than Loyola's to the formal Catholic archdiocese makes a difference. But there's no reason that the church couldn't file a 990 or that it couldn't have BYU start filing a 990 and then it moves eventually to file a 990. It's not by any means the only way it could do it, but it's one way that it could move. Sam, what would we learn from a 990? What what would people learn? Not a lot. They're complicated. But um, (laughs) journalists and tax people could look into the 990 and they'd find out things like how much the assets of the church how much revenue it has, how much expenses, perhaps if it's making grants and donations to other tax exempt organizations, who is making those grants to technically it would find out who the board of directors are. Although I think that we know that. Um, <laughs> would it show what they get paid? It might. It, it often shows the top earners. Right. But I, I don't know who the top earners at the church are. Again, yeah. it's not, I, I think it generally is the five top earners, give or take, because universities usually you see what the football coach makes. Yeah. So, so it's the top earners at which, from what we know of what 
the general authorities get paid, it would probably not be them. They, they would not be the top earners. It, it might be some person who's over all of their computer things or something like that. Some highly skilled professional, right? Head of Ensign Peak. Yeah, that'd be one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that that wouldn't shock me at all if it, if it weren't them. I, I uh-huh. mean, my understanding is they get a comfortable salary, but it's not an outlandishly high salary. Mm-hmm. What do you so, think would happen if that not only filed a 990, but sort of announced some of these broad categories in conference the way it did up until the 1950s. I mean, I I think that that would be an equally good way. I guess the 990 has the benefit that um, because you're signing under penalty of perjury, you're not going to be lying. I assume that when they announce (laughs) things in conference, they're also not lying. I, I don't see any advantage to them lying. I know not everybody agrees with me on that. Um, so it would be two different models. One is a model of disclosure that is mandated and kind of designed and scaffolded by law that makes it a fairly equal comparison to other organizations. The other is an internal thing that you decide whether you believe or not. But um, I mean, they, if they're voluntarily disclosing, there's no compelling reason to lie about it. So, so you, you mentioned that it might be rough the first couple of times, but explain to me how you think that could evolve once they start disclosing, if they started disclosing things. So, uh, I so assume it would be big news at first, of course. Oh, yeah, so, it, yes. I'm sure it would be big news at first. Um, and all of a sudden you have a lot of information that you just haven't had in 70-ish years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no real context for it. Like we, we do have some context for how much um investment money the church might have but like i have no idea what the church's net assets are i imagine between the land that it owns and other things that it owns it's a really really big number uh, like an unbelievably big number it wouldn't be comparable for instance to the catholic church because each i believe at the archdiocese level or maybe the diocese level they're incorporated separately so mm-hmm. you don't get an overall Catholic Church, where with the LDS Church, you do get an overall, like, single entity LDS Church. So it's big numbers, acontextual, um, nothing to compare it to. Does the church donate a billion dollars to the American Red Cross or to Catholic charities? Is that a lot? I don't know. I don't know what they've done in the past. I don't know what their general practice is. But after two or three years, we see they donate between 800 million and 1.2 billion dollars every year then suddenly i start having context for things things look less surprising they look more you know more normal mm-hmm. hey sam is there any point you want to make that we haven't asked about i i would want to emphasize that um the the tax stuff in the disclosure really isn't anything the I haven't seen anything in my colleagues who've looked, haven't seen anything that looks suspicious from a tax perspective. And I don't want to say that's because Mr. Nielsen is acting in bad faith. Tax law is complicated. The rules are not necessarily intuitive, are not necessarily easy. So I have very little doubt that at least initially, and perhaps even still, he was acting in good faith. He saw things that shocked him. Um, But it turns out that things that appear shocking when you don't know about them 
may be normal, may be acceptable. So I, I just would want to emphasize the SEC notwithstanding, because it does look like Ensign Peak advisors didn't do the things they were supposed to do under the securities law. Um, and it's not my area of expertise. I can't speak definitively to it. But the fact that they're under investigation, the fact that they seem to be negotiating a settlement agreement suggests that they messed up. Um, but I don't see any indication without facts well beyond what has been disclosed so far that Ensign Peak Advisors has done the same thing, has messed up when it comes to taxes. And at least from all we know, since they've started disclosing in early 2020, um, there have been quarterly reports every single time. Right. Uh, presumably, then they've remedied whatever issue there was in the past. Right. And presumably, they're accurately disclosing. And as long as they have the amount of securities they're required to disclose, I assume that they're going to continue disclosing mm -hmm. at this point. I don't have any guess as to why they failed to disclose up until then. The church tends to have reasonably good attorneys, tends to get reasonably good advice, but I don't know what the legal advice, I, I don't know if the church's attorneys also represent and sign peak advisors, or if they were just kind of running on muscle memory without looking at what the law was. Um, as an attorney, I'm a little bit prejudiced to say everyone should talk to attorneys and make sure they're doing things right. But it turns out that business people don't always do that. Well, Sam Brunson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Be well, okay? You too. Thank you. Thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our pr producer, Christopher Samuels, we remind you that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Solid Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. <laughs>